Hey everybody, welcome to Ask Me Anything. I am Matt Love, and I um, just want to say first off, sorry for the audio quality for my part of this. I'm actually recording this from Southeast Asia on a, a, a trip I'm on, visiting some some people here, and so I uh, don't have all the microphones and all that good stuff, but um, I did want to introduce this episode, which we're really excited about. Um, a few weeks ago, Pastor JD actually sat down with some college students from Hardin Baptist Church in Kentucky. Um, the group was visiting Southeastern um, Baptist Seminary, and we were able to have kind of an impromptu live Ask Me Anything with questions from the audience. And so it was a great opportunity to just hear JD dive right in to answer some of these, answering some of these really difficult questions that these students were asking. So we thought this could be kind of a fun thing to, to just play here and, and have JD dive into some of these questions these students were processing. So this is part one. The conversation was moderated by Josh Dickens from Southeastern. So you're going to hear him and JD as they're kind of going through this, this impromptu Ask Me Anything. So I hope you enjoy What do you say to people who ask, how do you have a faith in something you can't prove exists? How do you have a faith in something that you cannot prove exists? Um, you know, the first thing I would say with that is there's a lot of things that we believe in, that we perceive, that are not necessarily perceived through our five senses. That's really kind of the question behind that is like, is there another sense of the divine that's not accounted for in sight, touch, hear, smell, hearing. And I think the answer to that is yes. There are other things we perceive in that. I mean, just use the easy one, the, 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 the perception of love. I mean, the perception of love is something that is not really tangible or provable, but there's a, there's a distinct sense of it. Um, then you would say that's not just something that's completely made up. Um, you know, beyond that, uh, and that, by the way, goes under the name of the numinous, you know, the, the, the sense of the divine that many philosophers have argued is as instinctive to us as anything else that we have. I mean, C.S. Lewis, his famous kind of um, illustration of that is um, uh, a fish uh, does not think it's weird to be in the water. Um, you take a fish out of the water and he craves water. He said, well, that's kind of the human being is that we, we are all created yearning for something that nothing in the world can satisfy. And his statement was, and I won't get this exactly right, but he said something like, um, you know, if we find in ourselves a desire which no earthly thing can satisfy, the best explanation is that we were created for something more than this world. Um, so I think that that's, a, you know, that's, that's kind of where we start. Beyond that, and we could take this question into a several hour answer, mm -hmm. so I'll, yeah. this will be the Cliff Notes version of it. Um, beside that, there, there are several things that the Bible points to that philosophers have called um, the arguments for God. I actually prefer to see them less as logical proofs and more as evidences or fingerprints of God. Mm -hmm. Because I think when you put them in the logical proofs category, you kind of set yourself up for a potentially really difficult or losing argument because once you find one exception to it or one hard question, it's like, oh, you haven't really, really proven that. But I just don't think that's the right criteria. I don't think it's how God did it. I mean, just to say something ridiculous, you know, kind of the front, I, there's a lot of things I, I don't know if I can, pr I cannot prove that this is not really the matrix. You know, I, I can't prove that we're not characters in the dream of a demon right now. Um, but, but that doesn't mean that I live with that doubt that that's really what's happening right now is that we're all somewhere plugged up to the matrix and this is all a big illusion. Um, but just because I get proved that doesn't mean that it's unwise for me to live like 
we're in a real world. And so, you know, yeah, I, I prefer not to talk about proofs as much as I do like, well, these are evidences. What's the best, what's the best reason for that? I mean, to give one more illustration, I, I told somebody this the other day that was really struggling with this very question. I'm like, you know, if my wife gets home and it's her birthday and there's flowers on the table and there is, uh, you know, a, a special a note with a special name that I only, I'm the only one who calls her. I'm the only one who knows that name. And um, it's my handwriting and it talks about her favorite place to go eat. And it tells me to meet her there. It's possible that somebody has forged all of that and has arranged it so that it, he can kidnap and kill her. But you would say, well, that's just really unlikely that all those things would have lined up, even though you necessarily can't prove it. So what are the evidences and the fingerprints? I mean, philosophers have organized these into, I think it's four, I probably won't remember all of them, but one of them is the cosmological argument. And that basically is that nothing times nobody can't equal everything. And so it's hard to go back in this infinite regress. At some point, matter can't be eternal. So if matter does not possess in itself, eternality. There has to be something that creates it. So that's a strong evidence that there is a divine. Then there's what they call the um, uh, the moral argument. And that is the idea that we all tend to have a sense of right and wrong. And if we truly are just evolutionary accidents, there's no such thing as right and wrong. You know, the, you can't tell me it's wrong for, you know, a man to rape you know, a 13-year-old girl, because maybe that's just the best way of propagating, that's survival of the fittest, you know? You would say, well, that's more than just unhelpful, that's wrong, and, and so this sense that, that, that there's a morality that, that points to the evidence of a lawgiver. Uh, then there's the teleological argument, which is that we seem to be created for a purpose, um, and there's a, that longing for eternity that we talked about. Um, there is the, um, well, there's the ontological, and then there's, the, the one I'd probably go to after that is the, um, uh, the resurrection of Jesus. And just to say, if you really look at what happened in the first century, a lot of historians, including one that I've become uh, rather close to now at, at UNC Chapel Hill, uh, I wore their shoes today, by the way, um, they, uh, at UNC Chapel Hill, uh, you know, where, where it's just like, there really is no historically satisfying explanation for what happened in the first century other than the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. It's one of the most compelling of all the arguments. I think it's probably the most compelling when you combine that with the prophetic things. Again, would I say that that is, you know, I would, I would just say those are fingerprints and evidences that Jesus would say would allow you to see the truth if you really wanted to see it. The Bible puts the breakdown not in the arguments to your head, but in the condition of your heart. Um, the same sun that softens the clay hardens the wax. The difference is not in the sun, it's in the material it shines upon. And so it, you would say, if you are the kind of person that the Holy Spirit has created in you a desire to know God and a heart that seeks truth, um, then the, they will become obvious to you. What the human heart is before the Holy Spirit creates that in you is Romans 1.18, we suppress the truth and unrighteousness, which means not that the evidence wasn't there. It's that the evidence was sufficient. I just, I didn't want to believe it. And because I didn't want to believe it, I found a reason not to believe it. Um, if postmodern, this last thing I'll say, and then we'll you can go on to the next one. If postmodern philosophy taught us anything, postmodern philosophy was this brilliant new philosophy came up, started in the 18th century, really kind of came to fruition in the 20th and um, you know, 21st century. Um, and it was like these new discoveries that, you know, I think like William James, who says like, we gotta have, 
What you believe is more determined by the state of your heart. Blaise Pascal, his statement was, the heart has its reasons of which reason knows nothing, which means the way your head becomes convinced of what your heart wants to believe. That was this new thing for postmodern philosophy, and the Apostle Paul was like, yeah, I said that in Romans 1. And I basically said the reason people don't know God is because their heart is angled against God. So that is a really long, circuitous answer for how do we believe in a God that we can't see. So That's, that's a great answer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a difficult question, um, and this is a this is a good follow up for uh, that question: is how can we be effective in engaging college students on campuses with both grace and truth, um, and then while also sharing the gospel effectively? And so you have grace, truth, and that evangelistic component. Yeah, well, let's start with the end, and and then we'll end there too. Um, evangelism: the story of Jesus is the greatest of all evangelistic things. I mean, it's just you know it's. Like Charles Spurgeon used to say, um, you know, if you've you got a cage, the Bible's like a caged lion. If somebody is taunting and attacking the lion, rather than standing outside the cage and try to defend the lion, just open the cage. Um, the stories of Jesus, the preaching of Jesus. It used to be when I was when I was your age, you know, way back. Um, I, my, my goal in every conversation as a college student was to get through the four spiritual laws and to share the gospel. And I think that's amazing. You you should do that. Over time, especially as I became a missionary to Muslims, my goal shifted from getting just to the four spiritual laws and do you want to receive Christ. It changed from that being the goal to let me invite you to study the Bible with me. Because I know that when we begin to study the stories of Jesus together, I know that there's a beauty there that is actually more powerful than the logical arguments I might be able to overwhelm you with. Does that make sense? We have several tools that our college students use now, one of them is a very simple gospel presentation, but one of them is just the seven stories, the seven evangelistic encounters that Jesus has with John. And so we just say like, hey, yeah, let's, let's stop arguing about the cosmological argument for a minute, and let's just, let's just spend some time with Jesus. Um, so that's the end of it. The, the grace and truth part, um, there's a, here's a distinction that really helped me that I wish I could get more Southern Baptist worldwide to believe, um, especially some in really prominent positions. That I, who will remain nameless. There's a guy named Michael Green who wrote a book called Evangelism in the First Century. And he drew a distinction in that book between, and let me see if I can get this out right, between missionaries and defenders of orthodoxy. He said both are gifts in the body of Christ. Both are necessary. Both should appreciate each other and they should never contradict each other, but the way they approach culture and people is fundamentally different. The defender of orthodoxy is concerned to show how distinct the Christian message is from what the world says. The missionary, their focus is to try to find as many bridges as possible. Now again, it's wrong if they start to contradict, but a lot of times I think we in the seminary world, the kind of the church world, we get so caught up in the defender of orthodoxy thing that we forget that what we're really called to be is missionaries who are making this message accessible. It's easy for me to think about that when I was a Muslim, when I was a, Muslim, when I was a missionary to Muslim. I was never at any point a Muslim. But when I was there, I was constantly, yes, Muhammad is a false prophet. That's not where you start. Um, all, you know, Allah is a, a, a tyrannical deity that is more like a demon than he is like the God of the universe. Those, those are defender of orthodoxy statements. That's not where I started. 
I would start with saying, hey, both of us desire to know the God who created all of this. That's a point of commonality. Both of us believe that God revealed himself throughout history in, in prophets, that Muslims believe in 25 prophets. You and I acknowledge the validity of 24 of those 25. The 24th is, is Jesus. I just shared Christ with a Muslim last week in a taxi cab in New York City. And I said, you know, every prophet, every single prophet, Muslims believe this, and I, I know that's why I said it. Every single prophet has a special, unique angle on the message. And he was like, that's, that is exactly right. I said, do you know what Nabi Isa's was? Prophet Nabi means prophet Jesus. He said, what? I said, prophet Jesus was he could tell people how they could know for sure their sins were forgiven and going to heaven. All of a sudden, he's interested. And he's like, he's like, prophet Jesus? Yeah, I was like, yeah, if you read the Injil, that's their word for gospel, what you'll find is you'll find that there are all these places where he talked about the assurance of forgiveness of sins. He immediately said, but you Christians think he's God. Now, that's true, but, I, but you know what? I just avoided that because that's not the conversation I'm gonna have right now. I was like, yeah, yeah, I, I, there's some differences in how we think of it, but, but do you ever think about how you know for sure your sins are forgiven? And all of a sudden, now, now we're fishing because now he's like, okay, I got it. You know, I, I don't know if the conversation went anywhere. I got out of the Uber and that was the end of it. Um, but I think that that's much more likely to resonate with him than here's eight reasons the Trinity is right and Muhammad's a false prophet. So why do I share all that? I think that um, there's a, a sense in which you got to balance both of those. Um, when it comes to the concerns of the LGBT community, for example, um, yes, I want them to know that I care as much about them as anybody else, certainly more than the, the left you know, political pundits. I, I care about you as a person. And I wanna demonstrate that through word and through deed. When you're being picked on and discriminated against unfairly, I wanna be your defender. That doesn't mean I think you should have the right to get married. Doesn't mean that I think that you know, trans identity is legit, but, but I, I, can still, I can still defend your rights as a person and then, and then speak truth. I think grace and truth are essential Grace without truth is just sentimentality. Truth without grace is fundamentalism. And the beauty of Jesus is that he was both at the same time. All right, so we're going to pause the conversation right there for today. Thank you for joining us. And don't miss the next Ask Me Anything where we're going to pick up where Josh and Pastor J.D. left off there. And in part two of this live Ask Me Anything. Pastor JD is gonna answer some of the questions the students were asking about sin. Um, but in the meantime, you can check out jdgrid.com for more free resources. And we hope you'll be with us next time on Ask Me Anything.